The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm James Wilcock. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Happy Friday. It's been a week where we've spent quite a lot of time looking at the snow, not in London, but at the World Economic Forum in Davos, which I think probably needs to be somehow rebranded because it is essentially the greatest collection of sales pitches that you're going to hear in any one year. And we've been hearing one of them from the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. It's a funny moment where you do see very well, you know, very important people in their own countries who have to then go and find the CEOs and essentially say, please, please invest in my country. And doing it all in puffer jackets in the freezing cold in kind of a sort of exercise in proving that they of all people are hardcore. That's a whole other part of it is what you're going to wear when you're, while you do this as well. But I mean, I spent many years covering Davos and when you walk down the street in the town, you see these massive billboards advertising countries you know, you'll have India there advertising India. And this is part of the dance that you do when you go to Davos. And while it might not go down very well with people at home, if you're going to hang out with the global elite, this is essentially what most leaders tend to go for. And we heard it from so many political leaders this year. Just this morning, uh, the Greek Prime Minister speaking to Bloomberg, talking about some of the great investment opportunities uh, in Greece. And we heard it earlier from, from other leaders too. But but what, what's been your thought when you think about the UK politicians that have been there? Well, it's funny because what's both said in public and in private, Stephen, I mean, you, I heard this fun factoid this week that many private equity people hate Davos because they normally track company CEOs to find out what deals are being made by where they fly. And obviously, because they're all in <laughs> Davos, you can't see who's talking to who there. But what you do see from the public messaging is fascinating compared to if you look at what Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves says versus Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, the end goals were remarkably similar. They all wanted tech to come to the UK. Mm-hmm. They all wanted more capital listings, more sort of people listing on the UK stock market. Mm-hmm. And they all wanted endorsements of their political party. But how they went about it was very different. I mean, Rachel Reeves was basically on a mission to annoy any momentum activist or Jeremy Corbynista. She sort of used the words wealth creation. She said that we wouldn't do anything with tax to dist- deter international investments coming in. And for her, as with Hunt, there's always one eye on this being an election year to be trusted with global business elites for mm-hmm. labor is to be trusted with the economy whereas for hunt this is all about the uk as a tech leader better than europe was words that came mm-hmm. up and a bit of corporate tax hints of what might be coming as this idea that actually this government is capable of being a strong economic leader which has led the way ahead of others in europe well look let's take a listen to what the chancellor jeremy hunt said to bloomberg's francine lacqua in davos they started by discussing the news that google was investing a billion dollars in a new data center north of london It's a big sign of confidence. And what I'm detecting here in Davos 
is a recognition that the UK has become one of the great technology centers of the world. It's now the third largest tech economy after the United States and China, double the size of anywhere else in Europe. And of course, companies like Google are reflecting that in their investments, and this is a billion dollars to improve their data processing. It means that people who use Google facilities like Gmail will get a faster service. Uh, data is the kind of the wiring of the internet. If you don't store it effectively, um, the internet grinds to a halt. So it's, a, it's an example of the kind of deals that I'm here talking about the whole time as people look at the UK and they say, this is... Uh, Europe's Silicon Valley, and it's well on the way to becoming the world's next big tech centre. But uh, Chancellor, is this because they see opportunities in the UK or because they look at the rest of the world, they look at conflicts, they look at Europe and they think it's a bit of a mess? Well, I think it's a combination. The UK has got uh, stability and the rule of law, and that's very attractive to international investors. But it's also got two things that virtually nowhere else has outside the United States, the biggest financial services sector. So these small businesses that get off the ground can get the backing they need to grow. And that is very interesting to companies like Google and Microsoft. Um, but it's also got, outside the United States, the world's most respected universities, four of the world's top 20 universities. So the new ideas that are, for example, creating the new medicines of the future, uh, a lot of that is happening in the UK, and that makes it a very exciting place to invest. But, Chancellor, at the same time, there's so many questions. I mean, there, there was so much turbulence in the UK economy because of politics. We're now a little bit more stable, but we're looking at elections, and your party is far behind. What promises do you give to investors now? Well, I think when investors look around the world at the instability in other countries, the rise of uh, populist far-right parties in many parts of Europe, they say that even with elections, which is right we have because we're a democracy, the UK is actually a very stable long-term bet. And what they're also seeing is something they haven't seen before, which is that the technology sector is now so vibrant in the UK that they can't really afford not to be there. Will you, see, will you tell, actually, investors that we'll see a corporation tax cut? Well, they've already seen a huge corporation tax cut because in the autumn statement I introduced full expensing of capital allowances, which means for investors investing capital, they get a 25% discount off their corporation tax bill, which is more attractive than any other major country. So we will continue to do everything we can to get the tax burden down. And that is, you know, a choice we have as a country because other parties would increase the tax burden, they'd increase borrowing. We think the way we grow the economy is by reducing taxes, making them more competitive. But will that happen in the next um, budget statement? And is that going to be the, the next, the, the last financial event before the election? Well, Fran, it's uh, early days for the budget. It's on March the 6th. I haven't seen the final figures from the Office for Budget Responsibility, so I don't know uh, the headroom that I'm going to have to play with. But what I can tell you is what I want to do, because I look around the world and I see that North America, Asia, where generally countries have lower taxes than Europe, they're growing faster. In Europe, where our taxes tend to be higher, we're growing more slowly. So if I can, I want to reduce the tax burden and make the UK more competitive, more dynamic, more vibrant. Will you deliver a Nottum statement or will we have an election before then? Well, the timing of the election, I wish I could tell you, and it's not that I'm hiding, I just don't know. This is a decision for the Prime Minister. Um, what I have to do as Chancellor 
is make sure that I set the economy on the right track. Because the main reason people vote Conservative is because they trust us with the economy. And they can look at Rishi Sunak's record, my record, they can see we brought inflation down from 11.1% to 4%. Uh, so far we've avoided a recession even though many people predicted we'd get one um, and they can see tremendous prospects for the future. I mean, your party was all, not always stable but when you look at instability across the world and this is conflicts, this is concerns with uh, the, the price of oil and of course what we're seeing in the Middle East and Ukraine, do you worry that it's going to be a hard, very difficult economy this year? Well, I think um, I worry about the world, yes. I don't think we've seen it this unstable for a very long time. And the UK, of course, has a very important role in protecting uh, global stability, working alongside our allies like the United States. Uh, and of course, uh, if you're responsible for a country's economy, uh, you have to keep a very careful eye on what's happening in places like the Red Sea. Um, but what I would say is that the, the things that will really help to do that, bring down inflation, bring down borrowing, keep public spending under, the control, under control, that will make the economy resilient for whatever shocks might be around the corner. Final question, you are behind in the polls, an election is close, 20 points behind. Can you really make that up? Um, I believe we can um, because, um, you know, politics has never been more volatile. And in the end, when people see an economy that has weathered a pandemic, weathered uh, the cost of, cost of living crisis, uh, the very many shocks and challenges we've had, and we, when they see that actually our potential is huge despite all those challenges, I think they'll understand the value of a Conservative government. Well, that was the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Now, we did hear in that uh, interview the claim from Jeremy Hunt that the country is a beacon of stability for business leaders. Some might say the last seven years or so of British politics show otherwise. Take a listen to this. As we leave for the last time, my only wish is continued success for this great country that I love so very much. I have done everything I can to convince MPs to back that deal. Sadly, I have not been able to do so. I believe it was right to persevere, but it is now clear to me that it is in the best interests of the country for a new Prime Minister to lead that effort. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Those were the resignation speeches of, in order, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson and finally Liz Truss. Um, it's quite astonishing to me. It still gets me that one of those, the final two, in fact, are in the final sort of two years of my life. Um, well, also but, that they're also still fresh in our memories, I think. We shouldn't be able to remember all of those moments so clearly. I mean, just this week I've been listening to David Cameron, Foreign Secretary, a completely different man. You wouldn't have met him, Stephen. Hasn't been here for the past sort of 10, 15 years of politics. But the, so the sturdiness of Conservative government is something the party has been talking about for a while. I mean, if you remember strong and stable leadership from Theresa May. So joining us now to discuss is our government reporter, Joe Mays. Joe, um, we have had you on this podcast a lot over the past few years. Is. Do you buy Jeremy Hunt's narrative of stability? 
Well, I think that their argument is that henceforth we will provide stability because we have, broadly speaking, ended that psychodrama, which you just kind of very accurately portrayed through those resignation speeches. It's a forward-looking claim, isn't it? Obviously, they cannot change the past. They cannot change all the upheaval we saw in Westminster. But they can at least try to say, look, if you did stick with the Conservatives, Rishi Sunak, if you won the next election, probably would see that out, that term out, because he has basically taken control of the party. So that's that's where the stability claim comes from. But yeah, it kind of sticks in the throat when you think about what has happened recently on the Conservative Party. But yeah, it's, it's a forward-looking claim. So the funny thing is, I was at Labour Party conference, as were you this year, um, in sort of back in autumn, and I remember going to the business executives who were so willing to talk to Labour, what was so impressive about Labour, and they said, oh, it's promising stability. And I went to them, sort of, stability, though, is a lagging indicator. You only can be told that you have stability. And they came up with a different word of credibility. They trusted Reeves, they said, to deliver because she always takes responsible decisions. So I guess I would come back to you on that and say... Can Jeremy Hunt promise stability going forward? Is that, how would you look at a promise of stability? Well, I think when you promise stability, I think part of what you're promising there is stable economic conditions in which businesses might want to invest. And then it's a question of how credible is your fiscal policy and how likely are you to be at risk of doing what Quasi Quarting and Liz trusted, which was to prioritize political ends with your political policy to the point where you create negative economic ends. And that's what we saw there. I think that the claim that Hunt has to price stability in that context probably is fairly you know, credible at this point, although there is that risk, which is that given the election narrative, election incentives that the Conservative Party currently faces, that could create a political incentive to kind of go too far on the politics, like the tax cuts, for example, which could be seen as a loosening of fiscal policy, which could create, you know, interest rate action from the Bank of England and so on. So we, there's a little bit of risk there. You know, it's not a fully credible claim from Hunt. But you can see you can see where he's coming from in terms of, yeah, broadly speaking, it, it sounds fair at this point. Just on that note, we did hear in that interview with Jeremy Hunt this discussion of the potential for there being two fiscal events before the general elections, the budget that we know about on March 6th, and then potentially an autumn statement. What's the thinking about whether or not that whether or not that might actually happen. Well, I think that part of that will be because the Conservatives obviously want to deliver a tax-cutting package before the election, such that voters go to the ballot box feeling like the Conservatives are making them better off. And it could be the case that this coming March budget, Jeremy Hunt does not have the wriggle room to do that. You know, the fiscal headspace, the headroom might not be there to deliver tax cuts. In which case, you might think, well, let's do another fiscal event later in the year in the hope that economic conditions have improved and at that point we can do those tax cuts so i think that's why you might want to do two just to give yourself kind of two bites of the cherry in terms of giving doing those voter giveaways which could help you win the election when we think about the the, con- the contrast of the messages that we heard from those leading british politicians in davos how do you rate rate what rachel reeves had to say in her message the party of business and wealth creation versus jeremy hunt's choice of stability. Is this the start of a, an election narrative being drawn out, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's the Labour Party having to kind of keep fighting that credibility battle, which it's a big battle for them because of what happened in the Jeremy Corbyn years. And there's a constant test they have to pass of, you know, credibility with the business community. And it's frankly harder for them, given the baggage they've had to carry. So, yeah, that that, that 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 is an election narrative from Labour. But notice how it's still in pretty broad brush strokes, right? It's still like fairly buzzword level things like, you know, securonomics, providing economic security, some policy around it, but not as much as you might perhaps want from a, a government in waiting. Um, yeah, so that's what I say about Labour. And then for the Conservatives, you know, they, 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 they want to 
also claim that man's looking at the party of business, party of wealth creation. It's taken a bit of a battering in recent years because of all things we've talked about. Um, but yeah, Jeremy Hunt wants to present a kind of positive face to the world. Come invest in Britain. Yeah, that, that's the message they're bringing. I mean, thank you very much, Joe, our government reporter there, Joe Mays. There's rarely anyone else as clued up on what is going on in the Treasury. So we'll have to get you back when we know more about what that policy is. Now, the Northern Ireland Secretary says he'll bring in new legislation to deal with the political deadlock in Stormont. That's after another deadline passed for the Assembly to elect a Speaker. Northern Ireland's been without a functioning government for almost two years after the Democratic Unionist Party pulled out in protest over post-Brexit trade rules. Yesterday, more than 100,000 public sector workers across the region took part in the biggest strike in recent history. They're seeking the pay increases that have been awarded to their counterparts in the rest of the UK. Belfast nurse Adele Coulter was one of those taking part. We're the worst paid nurses in the whole of the UK. Um, we're talking thousands of pounds difference between what nurses in Northern Ireland earn compared to England, but at thousands again compared to Scotland. Pay is intrinsically linked to recruitment and retention, and it's about all of those things and ultimately patient safety. Well, the whole story around yesterday's strike is linked to the political deadlock at Stormont. Let's discuss all of this with Matthew O'Toole, who's the leader of the opposition in Stormont and an assembly member for the Social Democratic and Labour Party. Matthew, great to have you back with us on the programme. Another deadline missed for the executive to be restored. What should the Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, do now? Well, in our view, the first thing he should do is make the money available, which he has already said is available, and the Treasury have agreed it. Uh, is to make available that money to pay public sector workers. Um, I was out in the middle of Belfast yesterday. Uh, I was on picket lines in my constituency in the south of the city. And there's a real palpable anger, frustration, and feeling of complete alienation, frankly, among many public sector workers. I think it's important to say this is these aren't um, you know, these aren't kind of radical uh, strikers who are trying to, you know, get a, a exorbitant or unacceptable pay rises. They have been promised a pay settlement, which does not keep track of inflation over the last couple of years, but is close to what people, their counterparts, both across the water, as it were, in England, Scotland, Wales, uh, and a bit closer, though not at the same level as what those in the rest of Ireland have received. And frankly, they have been left down by both Chris Eaton Harris, the Northern Ireland Secretary, and the DUP, whose boycott has allowed him to, to take these decisions. So... They are very reasonable. Uh, their demands are the most reasonable you could possibly ask for, frankly. And that's what Christine Harris should do. That's the first thing he should do is pay them. More broadly, he needs to bring to a conclusion and be publicly clear that the DUP, the, the bilateral clandestine negotiation with the DUP is over and it's time for them to re-enter uh, the devolved assembly. And if they're not going to, then we need an alternative. And the alternative needs to be in the short term, probably uh, an enhanced role for the Irish government with uh with in terms of governance with the british government for northern ireland and then longer term both reforming our institutions to see if we can get devolution restarted on a different basis but then i think ultimately people will start to ask more fundamental questions probably about constitutional change to be honest Stephen. Uh, but that's you know getting the the irish government more involved one of the the plan b ideas that's been floated for quite a long time now Obviously, that's something that's easy for the nationalist community to support, but doesn't that just make the prospect of getting the unionists back on board in any sort of form of power sharing more difficult? Well, I think part of the challenge we have here is that for the last two years, in fact, for even longer than that, the entire, um, not just the kind of um, power sharing arrangements, which are unique uh, or relatively unique in Northern Ireland, certainly unique in these islands and in Western Europe, um, they one of the things that has been uh most frustrating is that it's only been 
the concerns of the largest unionist party, i.e. the DUP, that had been taken into account. Everyone else's concerns, and that includes, by the way, lots of people who are unionists too, who don't think we should be denied government here, have been completely abandoned. So I think if the DUP are going to prevent us from having any, any government at all, and that's their decision, they can hardly complain, nor frankly can the people who vote for them complain whenever we have to find an alternative. They, one of their repeated points is that uh, governance in Northern Ireland needs to have a measure of consensus and a measure of buy-in from all of the traditional identities. I don't like constantly kind of referring to this concept of the two communities because I'd like to think we're trying to move beyond that. But mm. it, it, but the principle there that's important. But the problem is that their boycott doesn't have any consensus. And you can't say, well, we're going to deny um, power mm. sharing, power sharing within the UK, but we're also going to have a veto over anything else because that implicitly denies everyone else, not just nationalists, but people who are, you know, broadly other types of unionists and people who don't take a view on the constitution. So it is really basically the DUP have a decision to make. They have been able to operate a veto for two years now. And if they say uh, that they are not going to allow devolution to operate, they cannot really uh, be allowed a veto over any form of governance or government. That would be, I mean, it would be insane as well as immoral. Well, you said they have a decision to make, Matthew. I mean, the DUP are reported to be holding a meeting today to discuss their position on power sharing. This standoff's been going on for two years. Do they have any ladders that you can see to climb down? Well, uh, I mean, for a lot of the last two years, we've all been, rather than making our points politically about our priorities and what we want to see delivered for our constituents, a lot of what we've been doing is giving commentary and psycho uh, psychoanalysis of the DUP. Uh, look, I I don't know, and I'm kind of loath. Uh, lots of journalists have reported on uh, the DUP's internal uh, machinations and how they might play out. We've kind of been here before. We know we've they've had internal discussions about this before. I hope they make the right decision. I know there are people within the DUP who desperately want to get back to Stormont and to devolution. Uh, because, frankly, they have constituents too. They have constituents who are desperately waiting on waiting lists. They have constituents who are teachers, nurses, social workers who have not been given uh, a meaningful pay rise in years. So they're hearing that too, uh, despite the fact that part of their base is clearly angry about post-Brexit arrangements. So I hope they do make the right decision. In terms of a ladder to climb down, look, uh, the DEP have kind of, whatever analogy you use, whether it's painting themselves into a corner, climbing Mm -hmm. up a gum tree, They've kind of put themselves in this position. They have had the opportunity to claim progress. You know, if I was advising them, I would have advised them nearly a year ago when the Windsor Framework was published, uh, they could have claimed that as some kind of victory for themselves. They didn't really do that. That was, I think, a huge political error from their perspective. But do you Um, understand... Matthew, do you understand the strategy as someone who worked in Number 10 and worked in the Treasury before you were elected in Northern Ireland? Do you understand the strategy being adopted by Chris Heaton-Harris from, from a Westminster point of view? Not really, is the short answer. And I think part of the problem has been the ab- an absence of coherent strategy, particularly from the NIO. I think it would be a mistake to think that there's been some uh, grand plan that's being executed. There are people inside the British government, not just in the NIO, and parts of other parts of Whitehall who have been engaging in this long clandestine process uh, with the DUP. Uh, I think part of the problem is engaging in that clandestine process also gave the DUP uh, an incentive to believe that they could just continue their boycott and get uh, and drag this out and get further little uh, tidbits and concessions. So um, uh, I think that the time for that really is concluded, not just because 
it doesn't seem to have worked thus far, notwithstanding the fact that we hope the DUP make the right decision today um, or in the days to come. But we now really have reached the point where whatever the DUP wants to do, everyone else needs to get on and have some kind of government. We need to have decisions made. We need to have money released to pay public sector workers. We need to have um, a budget well, set Matthew, that allows... Let, let, let's say they don't, the DUP don't make a decision today, and this drags out even further. We've got a coming general election. If a Labour government were to win power, I know you're far more aligned with them politically, do you think they would deliver on the public sector pay rises and unlink them from the rest of the package? Well, I certainly think, I mean, obviously we do, where their sister party, we very much want the Tories out and the Labour government. Obviously, bear in mind that uh, might not happen for another 10 or 11 months. I hope it happens sooner rather than later, but it, it might happen towards the end of this year. And and, uh, and and I don't want my constituents who are nurses, uh, teachers, classroom assistants, social workers to have to wait for another year, basically, for a pay rise. I certainly think it is true that a Labour government would not do what Chris Eaton Harris is doing and use and blackmail it, using these workers as pawns to, to force the DUP uh, back in. But I think it would be a de- desperate mistake for the DUP or anyone else to simply wait for us to restore devolution until there's a Labour government. Though I very much want a Labour government, I think it would be a real mistake uh, because not not alone because public sector workers deserve paid now and our public services are in crisis and need intervention now, mm. but because I think the public completely lose. I think the public are ahead of the politicians and the and the political class and the media on this. I think many of them have almost already given up on devolution and they certainly will have totally given up on it uh, if we wait another year or 10 or 11 months. Okay. It has to happen now. Wait for an election, a general election. Okay, Matthew O'Toole from the SDLP, a Northern Ireland member of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Thank you very much for joining us uh, to discuss that as we'll continue to watch for developments from those meetings that will be continuing today. That's it from us for today, though. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm James Wilcock. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.